where we've been on the Sermon on the Mount series. This is one of the most important sermons that Jesus gives. It's really, some people call it the kingdom manifesto. Jesus came proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or repent, for the kingdom of God is near. And what that simply means is that his reign on earth, God's reign, is here. And that was the good news. And the entire point of the Sermon on the Mount is to describe what life in this kingdom is like, to describe what this new life is like. So once you met Jesus in this powerful way and are transformed by him, this is what life begins to look like for you. And it's really completely, when you begin to read it, it is just countercultural stuff. And it is the most amazing stuff, and you've seen it played out in different people's lives over history and through the years when they really begin to follow some of this stuff. And I tell you, some of it is just completely challenging. So today we're going to look at one of the tougher segments, and, and today I had to tell you, this little segment right here is just thick. And so we're just going to get right into it. And one of my hope today is if you're the, the intellectual type thinker who loves to go deep and dig and get analytical, that's, that's more of where I see myself because I love to dig in deep and with all kinds of things and read and study. Um, hopefully you'll get it on that level. And if you're the kind of person that's like, I just get things simply because that's how I am, then I hope you'll get it on that level as well. So that's what we're going to do today. <laughs> Let's dig right into it. So... Jesus came proclaiming in Matthew chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near. The entire sermon is describing God's kingdom. And what's really important here is understanding kingdom. I think kingdom is one of the most important things that we can understand in our own walk with God. So I want to help you guys understand kingdom. Everybody turn to their neighbor and give them a high five. Just give a high five. If you don't have a neighbor, give yourself a high five. All right. Joe, give yourself a high five. I didn't see you give, give yourself a high five. Thank you. Anybody else, did anybody miss giving themselves or their neighbor a high five? All right, give, Gordon, please give yourself, all right, I, caught, I see your high five. Give it back to you. Okay, kingdom is the range of a person's effective will, okay? The range of their effective will. In other words, I just made you all give high fives. I made you do that. I said, would you do that? And I have influence over you, and so you did it, right? I tricked you. Sorry. So I, I, because I have influence, and I'm up here, and I've got a microphone, and I'm louder, when I ask you to do something, you do it, right? Each of us build kingdom. We begin building kingdom from the very beginning stages of life. When our kids begin to whine for a toy and get it, they learn how to get something, and they begin to build kingdom, their range of influence, Right? And we all have this. We have this at work. We have this at school. We have this at home. We have this with our spouse, with our uh, kids. We all have our own personal kingdoms, people in which we have influence over. So what is your will? Your will is what you want to see done. So it's the range that your will goes to. Some people who are CEOs have a huge kingdom because they could direct people like presidents and CEOs and, and, and heads of state all have very large kingdoms because they could direct people to do things, right? And what they say, people end up doing, especially people like generals and things like that. So it's the range of our effective will. Are you guys understanding me in that? That is what our kingdom is. And we begin to build these kingdoms all throughout our life, all over the place. And then what happens a lot of times we get married, right? And kingdoms clash. Dun, dun, dun. 
kingdoms begin to clash and you find out that you want to have influence in their life and they want to have influence in your life. And if you're not careful about it, then you can end up just having this epic battle of two kingdoms that does not end well. So each of us have our own kingdoms. And Jesus came proclaiming, proclaiming, repent, change your mind for my kingdom. It's here. The range of my will is now here with you on earth. And so simply what Jesus wants us to do, we're going to pray for them in just a second. Simply what Jesus wants us to do is submit our kingdoms to his kingdom. Like I, I've told you this before, because we're on Arrow Highway, um, I, do, I grew up in a church where our pastor stopped and prayed every time for whatever might happen, and I just want to do that. So let's pray. Father, um, for whatever just happened, you know what it is. It's in your hands. We ask that you would uh, be present in that situation. Lord, that you would take care of the emergency and the first responders, and that you would take care of whatever is going on that they're rushing to. In your name we pray. Amen. So your kingdom is your range of your effective will. It's how broad your reach is. And Jesus came proclaiming that he has one too. And so when we begin praying things like, God, not my will, but your will be done, that's a kingdom prayer. That's saying, God, I want your will to influence my life. In fact, I want your will to influence my kingdom. Because Jesus never says it's bad for you to build kingdom. He's simply saying, I want it. I want your kingdom. And so for the people who um, build huge companies, for the people who have huge, massive influence in life, I think about um, our former pastor, Gordon. At his funeral service, there was over 1,300 people. And on top of that, there were people who wanted to come but couldn't make it. People who build kingdom and submit it to God. Because Gordon had a kingdom. I mean, there was tons of people, in, and not in like a king or king type way. There were tons of people in his range of influence. But that was so submitted to God that people were changed and affected because of God working through his life. So it's okay to build this kind of kingdom, but Jesus simply wants it. Does that make sense? Are you with me on kingdom and range of our effective will? Okay, that's really important for what we're going to talk about next. What we've turned Christianity into, um, think of the Victorian age. The Victorian age, 1800s, is a list of moral behaviors in which we need to follow in order to get into the good place, heaven, right? And so... Let me show you a quick video clip, Becky. It's uh, called The Bridge Keeper. We're just going to show you a quick video clip from one of my all-time favorite movies. And uh, we're going to talk about this for a second and help us to get it. Make sure we have volume, Zach. There it is. The Bridge of Death. Oh, great. Look. There's the old man from scene 24. What is he doing here? He is the keeper of the bridge of death. He asks each traveler five questions. Three questions. Three questions. He who answers the five questions. Three questions. Three questions may cross in safety. What if you get a question wrong? Then you are cast into the gorge of eternal peril. Oh, wacko. Who's going to answer the questions? Sir Robin. Yes? Brave Sir Robin, you go. Hey, I've got a great idea. Why doesn't Lancelot go? Yes, let me go, my liege. I will take it single-handed. I shall make a feint to the North East. No, 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 hang on, hang on, hang on. Just answer the five questions. Three questions. Three questions as best you can. And we shall watch and pray. I understand, my liege. 
Good luck, brave Sir Lancelot. God be with you. Stop! Who would cross the bridge of death must answer me these questions three. Ere the other side he see. Ask me the questions, bridgekeeper. I am not afraid. What is your name? My name is Sir Lancelot of Camelot. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is your favorite color? Blue. Right, off you go. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <clears throat> That's easy! Stop! Who approaches the bridge of death must answer me these questions three. Uh, the other side he see. Ask me the questions, bridgekeeper. I'm not afraid. What is your name? Sir Robin of Camelot. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What is the capital of Assyria? I don't know that. <laughs> your name? Sir Galahad of Camelot. What is your quest? I seek the grail. What is your favorite color? Blue. No. <laughs> Stop. What is your name? It is Arthur, King of the Britons. What is your quest? To seek the Holy Grail. What? Is the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? What do you mean? An African or European swallow? Huh? I, I don't know that. Who do you know? So much about swallows. Well, you have to know these things when you're a king, you know. It's true. You do need to know that, you do need to know that when you're king. But we've, a lot of times in church, we've turned Christianity into what are the minimal entry requirements to heaven. And that's what's, like, do you have the right answers? Do you know the right biblical trivia to get in? And and that's really, like, what some theology we've been operating under as a church. I'm not talking about Neighborhood Christian Fellowship, obviously. I'm talking about the church as a whole. Um, In the the 1800s and leading into uh, where we're at now. And so these people, a lot of people have these ideas. Well, you know, I go to catechism, or I went to Sunday school as a kid, and I graduated, right? I learned. I got certificates. I'm good. I have the minimal entry standards into heaven. But Jesus didn't say, here's the, here's the uh, key to the test. Here's the answers to the exam. He, that's not what he came proclaiming. He came proclaiming that he took, I mean, in the, Monty Python did this so well. This is Monty Python and the Holy Grail, if you've never seen it. Um, he did this so well. I don't know if he meant to think th- theologically here, but he did in virtue of putting it on this film. We tend to think of, of um, heaven as walking up to this bridge, and you've got to get the right answers, or you've got to have um, somebody look up your name in the book of life, and, and then you get in. If you had all the right answers. But Jesus came proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven actually came to us. And yes, heaven is a place that you go to when you have a personal relationship with Jesus after you die and, and you rest and you get eternal fellowship with him. Absolutely. And none of that's taken away. I don't mean to take away any perception of heaven, but only to make it greater in that it's available here and now. 
and that we can live in heaven here and now, in the way, and by virtue of living in God's kingdom here and now. And so, the reason why I tell you all of this is to look into the verse that we need to look into today. So, let's get into it. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. So this is right after Jesus gave the Beatitudes, which you remember, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are those who are persecuted. And then he talked about being salt and light. In other words, being a good example or a good witness. Um, living in the kingdom changes things in your community. And then Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he starts by addressing some of the fears of the Jews that were there. And he said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is talking about this exact thing that we have just discussed. You have, do you have the kind of faith that's about knowing the law, the kind of faith that's about being able to recite the Shema, the kind of faith that's about being able to list all the Ten Commandments in order, or do you have the kind of faith that lends to relationship with Jesus. So we're just going to break this down today to help us understand this, because literally, this is probably one of the most confusing sections of the Sermon on the Mount. So I'm just going to try and help us understand it in a simple way. What is the law? Jesus begins talking about the law. First, there were very big concerns here that Jesus would actually come and say, um, teach his people not to follow the law. Teach them that the law is wrong. And that's not at all what Jesus was doing. In fact, Jesus affirmed the law. So what is the law? In Jesus' time, there were uh, two laws that are basically at work. One, God's law, which was established, um, if you look at Exodus chapter 20, if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, the Shema, if you look at all these great verses in the Bible, the Old Testament, um, that's the first kind of law that was effect. It was God's law. It was written in the, what they called the Torah, the first five books. There was this great declaration, Hear, our, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Great passages of neighborly love in Leviticus. Great passages that, that proclaimed God's law. So Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish that. I'm not here to take that away. I'm here to fulfill that. And he even said the smallest letter of the law will not disappear. Jesus himself was asked by a rich young ruler. He, was say, he said, hey, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus simply said, I mean, he knew that this guy's hang-up was his money. And so he said, go sell everything you have and follow me. Keep the law. He said, keep the law. And keeping the law for this guy would have been not coveting. So a way to not covet would be to get rid of everything and, and not care about it anymore. And so Jesus said, keep the law to this guy. And then the second round of laws that are at work in Jesus' society, in the area where he was talking and living, was the oral law, commonly referred to as the Talmud, the the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders. Remember, Jesus talks about this, and he says, your traditions are far from me. You know, and you load up heavy burdens on people's shoulders. 
And so let me tell you for a second about the traditions of the elders. Sabbath is just the very, the easiest example to use. So Sabbath or Shabbat is on, um, from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And what the Jewish scholars or what the rabbis said was, okay, let's look at what the work they would have had to stop doing in the Torah. So the work they would have had to stop doing was building the tabernacle. So it's all types of ranges of work. There's sewing, there's carpentry, there's um, burning a fire or kindling a fire. That, that would have all had to stop for the Sabbath. So those are 39 restrictions. On top of those 39 restrictions, there's about a billion other restrictions against each one that says which one you can do and which one you can't do. So it's very restrictive. So let me give you an example of today and how Jews are living this out. We all, how many of us drive cars? We all drive cars, right? You have an internal combustion engine, which creates a little fire. That would break the, the Sabbath law of kindling a fire, so you're not allowed to drive your car. Oh, but what if I have an electric car? Ah, they got that one covered. Electricity essentially does the same thing, they say. It's fueled for the same purposes as light or movement. And, and so um, you flip on a light, and that's essentially the same thing, kindling a fire. And so you're not even allowed to flip a light switch on. And so this is not in the Bible at all, not even remotely. And so when Jesus is talking about law and the Pharisees, this is what he's referring to. This law that they have just made up kind of out of their own interpretation of the law. And so when they say, when the Bible says keep the Sabbath and remember what God has done for you on that day, they say, here's a list of 20 billion things not to do. Now, there's really not 20 billion. No one can count that high. But there's a list of numbers of things that you cannot do on the Sabbath or else you sin. It's very restrictive. And so you understand how they're concerned about their law because this is also a way that the elders at this time used to keep their people in check, to keep their power, right? And so if I want to keep power, I'm going to set restrictive laws, right? Look at North Korea, if I want to keep power, I've got to set these laws. I've got to shelter my people. And then they created these restrictive laws to make them fully dependent on these rabbis versus fully dependent on God. So when Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law, he's talking about Ten Commandments. He's talking about um, Deuteronomy chapter 6. He's talking about all the Old Testament stuff that's in the Bible. And then when he begins to bash on these, on these Pharisees, saying your righteousness needs to surpass their righteousness, he's talking about their laws. And so this is a very difficult thing because he's talking about law. So, is anybody completely lost here? <laughs> so then Jesus says, I've come to fulfill the law. How do you fulfill the law? We were just actually talking about this today in, um, in our staff meeting before the service. These Old Testament rituals and, and practices in festivals Another word for festival is rehearsal. And so when you have the festover, festival of the Passover, you're essentially rehearsing for the day that the Messiah would come. When you have the festival um, of Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, when you confess all the sins onto a goat and send it outside of the city to die, you're essentially rehearsing for the Messiah to come. Right? And so Jesus came as the fulfillment of what was told that would happen. Jesus came as the fulfillment Old Testament. Also, how did Jesus come to fulfill it? And do we still need to follow God's law? This is a big question in, Christ in Christianity today. Do we still need to follow God's law? 
Let's look at Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, as a way that God helped us to continue to follow his law today. It says, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put their law, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And what we've come to understand about Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, is that as you begin to invite Jesus into your life and ask the Holy Spirit to dwell in your life and transform you, it is God absolutely writing his law on your heart. It's called transformation. When you take an apple tree, if you were to cut all of its branches down, eventually what's going to happen? It's going to grow back, and what's going to grow? Apples, right? You mean you could change the outside look of somebody or something, but internally the nature stays the same. So the nature of that apple tree is that it's an apple tree, and it'll always be an apple tree, right? It's never going to be anything different. You could cut it all back, and it could look different, but it's still an apple tree. We could try to be different people and try and try and try to be better people, but inside of us there's still that sinful nature, right? And if if your faith is all about trying to just cross the bridge and have all the right answers, you're always going to revert back to the stuff that haunts you. You're always going to revert back because God wants to transform your essential nature. That is of what is inside you. God wants to transform that faith. Transform that person that's inside you so that the outside becomes different too. Following God's law is following God's nature. Now this is getting into a little bit of philosophy here. So I'm going to try and make it very simple because philosophy is hard. Um, law reveals nature. Let me give you an example. If you were living um, in communist Russia and for the very first time you got to read the Constitution of the United States of America, what, would you, what impression would you get is the nature of America? Freedom, Right? If you're living in a completely restrictive world and country and you got to read, you know, we held these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, you would say, wow, that is not my reality. The nature of this place is completely different. Law reveals nature. God's law reveals nature, his nature. So love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. What does that reveal about God, his nature? That he's loving, right? And so when Jeremiah talks about this day that God wants to write his, his law in our hearts, what he's doing is he's taking out our nature, that sinful nature, and he's replacing it with his nature. And so transformation for us really becomes a following the law. So as, as a fully devoted follower of Jesus, would you even consider that stealing is a good thing? No, of course not. Did you need to read the Ten Commandments to tell you that? No, you didn't. Should you read them? Absolutely. Would you consider that coveting your neighbor's oxen is a bad thing? Right? How many of you have that problem? (laughs) I know you do. Just pointing people out, Richard. Um, How many, I mean, we would consider going to, on a witness stand and lying in a criminal trial to be a bad thing, Right? I mean, that, that's wrong. Bearing false witness against your neighbor, that's the wrong thing to do. 
right? So how many of us need, though, the, I mean, when you're fully devoted follower of Christ, you need to go, okay, you know what, actually, let me check what it says on that. Can I lie here? You know, we don't need to do that because God has written his law in our hearts. God has transformed us through the power of his Holy Spirit. And the power of the Holy Spirit reverts us back to look at God's law. So it's not that we need to keep all the festivals and all that stuff because God has fulfilled all of that. Jesus has fulfilled it all. In fact, there was these groups of people called Judaizers in, the, in, the, in Paul's time, and Paul constantly is battling these people because Paul is saying, listen, there's incredible freedom. Now you have the Holy Spirit. Now God is writing his, his love on you. He's writing his love on your hearts. But there was these people that came behind him and said, you still need to be circumcised, you still need to, follow, you still need to pay the temple tax. Well, of course they wanted him to pay the temple tax because uh, that was a lot of money. And um, you still need to do this, 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 and this, and this if you want to be saved. And Paul says, don't listen to these people. God has written his law on your hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's called Transformation. And what Jesus did is make available his presence to replace your sinful nature with his nature. And his nature is revealed in the law. So if you're still totally lost at this point, let me help you understand after the service because it's only going to get a little bit more complex here. So Jesus wants to change the inside of us before we could ever look different on the outside. And so many times we try and do that backwards, right? Well, if I just try and do this better, it'll work out. But Jesus wants to change our essential nature. That is from which is inside us before the outside can change. So the law reveals God's nature. God's nature didn't change in Jesus. God's law did not fade away, but it was fulfilled when it was written in our hearts. It was fulfilled when the Holy Spirit came and made available the kingdom right now. So, how do you keep the law? How do you get into this kingdom, right, that God says is here and among us and present? How do we do that? John chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus gave the most simple thing in the world, and I, I love his simplicity and yet his complexity all at the same time. In his simplicity, he said, the work of God is this, to believe in the one who he has sent. I mean, it, nothing is so deep and rich and yet so simple. Belief to a child is just, yeah, I believe it. But it's so deep and rich and understanding that God wants to actually transform our nature from the inside. And by believing, God is going to transform that. And it's not just by saying, yeah, I think that piece of trivia is true. Because a lot of times we do that, right? Yeah, you know, I intellectually believe that Jesus came and died on the cross. I intellectually believe that that happened. And for a long time, I even found myself in that circle where I said, yeah, I intellectually believe, of course I believe this stuff. But did I allow God in to transform my essential nature? Not until I realized that that is what God wants to do. God had to draw me to that place that God wants to transform me from inside out. So in order to begin to follow God's law, we need to just simply put our trust in God. We submit our kingdom to His. Remember what I was talking about with the high fives, the range of our effective will. We submit that, our kingdom, our influence that we have to His kingdom and believe in Him. We put our trust in Him. 
the scribes and Pharisees focused on action, on things that they did, would do. There was a, a elaborate specifications of what these actions required. They created a lot of social pressure for people to follow these actions and to follow these things specifically and implicitly. There was immense social pressure to do the right thing or to be cast out of God's good graces. And there's times where, you know, maybe in your past you've been to a church where you feel like if you don't say or do the right thing, they're just going to boot you to the door. And people say all the time, oh, I came in and the walls didn't fall down. Or, the, you know, maybe you've even said that. And I wonder where they get that idea. Is it that they've been to a church that demands so much of them in, in that, that they really believe that they're like the worst sinner possible on earth? I mean, because people have that prevalent idea in our society. The Pharisees, their true nature was about building their own personal kingdom. It was about advancing their life, their reputation, and really not a whole lot to do with the work of God. Some of it was. I mean, they did some of that work, and some of them were really good people. They were great people. But it was really more about building their own personal power. Jesus even helped the religious to see and connect the inside and the outside. I, th- I really do think that Jesus was the smartest man that ever lived, and, and mainly because we understand transformation now from an academic and a scientific perspective. And um, even in psychology and all these different practices, we see that the inside needs to transform before the outside can change. And, and it's, to us, that's obvious in this day. But it wasn't necessarily obvious to them. So listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and 26. He says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. In those days, when you were to wash a cup, you'd have a basin of water, and you'd dip the cup in the basin, and you'd wash it. And what Jesus is simply saying is if you wash the inside first, the outside cannot help but to be clean because of the overflow. Does that make sense? Okay, good. I heard a couple, "Mm mm-hmm, that's great. So, trying to wash a cup, Jesus was making a point. Obviously, you don't just wash the outside of it. That would be ridiculous. But if you wash the inside, the whole thing could become clean in the process. Because Jesus really does want our actions to transform. Our actions are an important thing. Our deeds and what we do is a very important thing. But first, what needs to transform is our inside. And this is what Jesus is trying to, to make his point at here, when he's talking about the law and the Pharisees and surpassing their righteousness. Because saying surpassing the righteousness of the Pharisees would be like me saying, okay, you guys all need to be better than Billy Graham and Rick Warren and um, any other religious celebrity that you could ever think of, you need to be better than them. Okay? Because in this day, there's no way to be better than the scribes and Pharisees. They did all the right things. And Jesus goes and tells them, but you're wicked on the inside. So this little section that we're studying today, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. How do we have righteousness that goes beyond? 
I mean, that's a, I think that's a valid question for today. How do we have righteousness that goes beyond? Because I tell you what, they were some good dudes. They, threw, they gave money to the poor every time they see them. They gave a tenth of their mint and cumin, which I'm sure you all do, because um, you're all good Christians, right? Um, they, they give, they um, support, their, and they honor their parents. They do everything they could do to look and seem religious. So how do you get better than that? I mean, because they were really good. So how do you even get better than that? So first, like I mentioned before, John six twenty nine, it says, The work of God is this, to believe in the one who he has sent. So we need to believe in Jesus. And I know that sounds so elementary. And if you're like a really deep thinker, you're like, oh, right, you just want me to just believe in this guy who was supposed to live 2,000 years ago. Well, no. I want you to investigate. Do what I did. When, when I... Um, when I first started going to church, I was 15 years old, and I know I've told this story to those, many of you who have been here before. I went to get my brother to stop going to church because I didn't want him to join a cult, right? And I figured it was a Nazarene church, which is a great evangelistic denomination. Um, I was like, I've never heard of this Nazarene thing before, so he's definitely going to go join a cult. And so I got to get him to go stop. And so I went to church, and I said to the youth pastor, I was like, give me a verse to study. Ha, ha, ha. Basically, I was going to get it and throw it right back in his face and show him how his religion was wrong and worthless, right? So in my animosity towards organized religion, because it really was, it was like organized religion. I, I hate that, and, and I really had big problems with it. Um, he said, well, just read the book of Matthew. And I read the Sermon on the Mount, and as I'm reading this, it's not about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. As I'm reading this kind of stuff, I went, Wow. And I'm going through murder, adultery, divorce, oaths. I'm reading all this stuff and going, there's so much truth in all of this. And, and as I begin to study and do some more digging, and believe it or not, as a 15-year-old without really the internet, I just began digging and digging and digging and digging, and, and I came to a point where I believed. Now, some people, they could just hear it and believe. For me, it was not that easy. It was like I had to dig through some stuff in order to believe. So for you, what does it mean to believe? I love it when people say, well, I don't really believe in what the Bible teaches. And I say, have you studied what the Bible teaches? And they say, no. And I say, so you don't know what the Bible teaches? No, I don't. Not knowing is irresponsible. When you say, I don't know, um, like something, like when your boss comes to you and says, now, is this project done? Well, I don't know. That's saying, I'm too, res- I'm too irresponsible to figure that out right now. I mean, in all reality, not knowing is a game of your responsibility. Now, there's some things that I, there, I could fill books and things with things that I don't know. And I don't mean that you need to know, like, at what point the dinosaurs lived and, and died or anything like that. But what I'm saying is not knowing in some cases is just simply a game of irresponsibility. And so I would challenge you to, to dig deep into the Scriptures and to find out, for you, who is Jesus? So when, when God says, or when Jesus says, you know, the work of God is this, to believe in the one who is sent, that, that could be for some people, oh yeah, totally, I believe. And people like me, it was, no, I need to study because believe it or not, at, at like 17, I was reading Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche, nihilism. Anybody else read Nietzsche? Is it just me? Don't read it. It'll mess you up. Um, and at 18, I was reading Camus and, and the revolt of the masses. And, and I was like, no, this, this stuff is true. And so I was 
going back and forth. So believing for me was very deep. And I had to dig through a bunch of this junk to get out to what I really believed. And so what I would say is don't say, I don't know. Say, I'm going to find out. And really do it. Really study the scriptures. Because God, I mean, if you, if you don't know if there's a God, and if you're wondering, if you're going back and forth and all this stuff, well, God gave a revelation to us. I know that even sounds simple, but if you go through the process in which the Bible was even put together, it's a miracle that we even have it today. And so I would say, seek, and you will find. Seek, and you will find. All right, we're going to continue on here. So believe, and I know that is not simple. Believe in the one who is sent. So that one, how does our, how does our righteousness surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees? Believe. Two, John 14, 15 through 16 says this. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commands. And remember, we're going to pause there for a second. When, the, when uh, people came to question Jesus, they said, what is uh, the most important of the commands? And they're asking him this because they actually believe. Um, there's some, there was a school of thought at the time that believed that honoring your father and mother was the highest of the commandments. And Jesus said, love God, love people. So when Jesus says, keep my commands, if you love God, if you love people, will you even think to have to commit adultery? No. If you love God and if you love people, will you even think to steal? No. If you love God and love people, would you even think of harming somebody else? Absolutely not. And there's this popular worldview today that says, if you're just a good person, and I, I wish that was true, you know, if, if you're just a good person, or at least don't do any harm to anybody. But that's just transforming the outside. We can all change patterns in our lives. We could fool people for a long time. But God really wants to transform what's deep down inside of you and change you into his image. So let's keep going. John 14, 15 through 16. So once you believe, if you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate and to help you be with you forever. God, God powerfully, powerfully wants to invite you into his kingdom through, through this way, through saying, I will send another advocate, and that advocate is the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he actually wants to live with you. So it's actually God's presence, or, and when God doesn't just bring his presence, he brings his entire kingdom, right? It's God's kingdom in your life. When God's presence is in your life, your kingdom begins to be transformed as well. That in which you have influence over begins to transform as well. So the work of God is to believe, and then he'll send the Holy Spirit. And that will begin to transform our inner nature. And we, we can't just say, okay, that's it. You've got to dig into what God has given you. If you're not in a Bible study, we've got a bunch throughout the week, and we've got Sunday school that Pastor Earl talked about today. You've got to dig into some of this stuff. If you don't have any clue, do what I did. Start in the book of Matthew and just start going through it. It is absolutely transformative stuff. But God wants to take the Pharisee that's alive within you. The Pharisee that says, if you just do good works, if you just look good in front of people, then everything will pan out in the end. 
or if you just are a really good person, then God's going to let you cross that bridge at the end. God wants to take that Pharisee that's alive in you that says, you know what, the minimum entry requirements to heaven are okay with me. God wants to take that Pharisee and he simply wants you to surrender that to him. Because God wants you to live in his kingdom today, a kingdom that brings tremendous freedom, a kingdom that is simply God's presence with you. The good news is not just that Jesus came and died and rose again, although that's incredible news. The good news is that God is here with us. That God didn't leave us out to dry, not like deism says, where God came, created the earth, and boom, bailed. I was watching, um, Netflix has this documentary on Auschwitz. Auschwitz. I think I said it right. Auschwitz and Dachau. And I was listening to some of the Jews who lived through that. And just It's a heart-wrenching documentary to watch. So if, if you have a weak stomach, I'd suggest you don't watch it. It's very heart-wrenching. And one of the Jews said, God would not come to this place. God has left this place. God has abandoned this place. And while there is incredible atrocity that happened there, I don't believe that at all. I believe that God was there present with the dying. I believe that God wants to be there, here, present with you through the power of his Holy Spirit. And sometimes you just need to experience it. What is knowledge? It's the sum of our experiences. And God simply wants you to grow in knowledge of him and experience him in his kingdom here on earth. So maybe you're here today and your inner Pharisee is more interested in looking good on the outside than transforming the inside. Maybe you know that your true nature is bad. I mean, there's just some junk that's happening on the inside of you, and you have some thoughts that, that are just wrong. I mean, you, you look at people lustfully, or maybe you, you, you think of people the wrong way, or you gossip about people because the inside begins to speak on the outside. And maybe there's just some of that inner Pharisee that's just building up within you. Today, I want to encourage you, and I just want to encourage you to do this, what, John, what Jesus said in John chapter 6, to simply believe in the one who is sent, and then go find out what that means. Dig into the scriptures, get into a small group, get into a Bible study. Or maybe you're here today, and you've got this kingdom that's great and grand, and you've got a reach that is ridiculous. It is so far and so wide, you can call somebody on the other side of the world and say, hey, do this, jump, and they'll jump. Because your will is just that strong. I think Jesus simply wants you to pray this prayer today. Lord, your will be done, not mine. God, your kingdom in my life, not my kingdom in my life. Or maybe you're living in hell. Because I believe you could live in heaven on earth and on hell on earth. Maybe you're simply living in hell and you finally have come to the grips, come to grips that the good news is that Jesus came announcing that heaven is available now. Heaven's available now. When you begin to live in the way that Jesus called us to live, it's available now. And when we talk, we're going to talk about heaven and hell in this series, and I'm going to talk a little bit more deeply what the Bible says about that. One of the things, and just give you a quick preview, there's a, there's a really great thinker. You, you all know I talk about Dallas Willard a lot. I read a lot of Dallas Willard. But he, talks, he, he said one time, I wonder if I die, I wonder if I'll even know that I've died. 
You have to think about that a little bit because he says, I'm living in the kingdom so much now that when I die, it's just the most natural thing to be with God. I'm living with God so much now in this earth that I just go on and live with that. Is it wrong and rude for some people to go to heaven? Yep. Let me explain that for a second. Let's just say y'all hated me. You just hate my guts. You can't stand me, okay? Let's just say, like, every day you go home and you have a dartboard with my face on it, you're throwing darts at me. And, and you all died, and I got to decide where to go. Would it be loving of me to say, come on over, you're all with me for eternity? <laughs> Would that be the most loving thing to do? God wants people to go to heaven. God wants everybody to go to heaven. But he's not going to twist your arm and make you go if you don't want to be there. And he says, you've got to live this way on earth first. It's like practicing for heaven. So maybe that's you today. And sorry, I, I'm starting into a completely different message. So just stay tuned, stay focused, stay with us, and we'll get there in like 20-something weeks. Uh, <laughs> so maybe today you're living in hell and you simply need to live in the reality that God's kingdom is here and available to you right now, right where you sit. simply want to pray with you today. Lindy, would you mind coming? We're going to pray. Maybe you're in one of those three groups and you've got that inner Pharisee that needs to die. Your kingdom is grand, but you need to give it to God. Or that you're living in hell and God wants you to live in heaven and earth. Let's pray. Jesus, there are those here this morning that simply need to look up to you and say, I believe. Lord, I want to give a moment for that to happen. Just individually between, between people sitting right there at their tables and you. To just say, God, I believe. And then, Lord... There's people here today that simply need the power of your Holy Spirit in their life. Lord, I want to invite them right now to say, God, I've, maybe I've had knowledge of you, but I need you to be here with me. I need to live in your kingdom right now, right here. There's no way I could be better than Pharisees. But I need your righteousness in my life. Maybe you need to do that right now. Lord, and there's some of us here today who just have kingdoms that stretch. God, we've got power, we've got influence, and we've built that. And nobody built it except for us. But God, you want to redeem that. Maybe there's some of you here today who just need to say, God, my will is yours. Lord, you use your will in my life. Your will be done, not my will. So there's some of you here today that simply need to pray that. Lord, I trust that each person has been talking to you in their own significant way. Lord, would you do a work in these people's lives? God, would you begin to change hearts and minds? Lord, would you wash us internally so that our actions would begin to glorify you. 
Lord, would everything we do be an act of worship and obedience to you? God, thank you for so many people that, that just love you and God are seeking you and trying to figure out what that means. Lord, I pray that those who are here today seeking you would find you. God, would you speak to us individually today? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.